Welcome to the City Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. As a community of faith, we are passionate about helping people find and follow Jesus. Um, I hope you take your Bibles with me and turn with me to the book of Acts chapter number 12 as we get into the Word of God today. Acts chapter number 12, we'll be continuing our series. Um, But I want to talk about moms just for a little bit here at the very beginning of the message because today is Mother's Day and we are certainly thankful for our mothers. I'm thankful for my mom. I'm thankful for my wife and the mother that she is to our our family. And uh, moms are are so amazing if you really think about it. Moms really are uh, pretty fantastic. Mothers are, uh, they're fantastic to me just because there's so many things to us. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, they are... uh, uh, they're, they're life givers, first of all. And if that's the only thing you can thank your mom for, you can thank her for the fact that she gave life to you, which is, which is a blessing, of course, there. But moms do so many things for us. I mean, of course, we think about how they provide meals for you. Uh, if your mom cooked, you're thankful for that. Um, if uh, uh, she provided discipline for you, whether you liked it or not, she was disciplining you, and that's important to your life. Uh, but I think universally, when it comes to our moms, and we should admire, by the way, we should admire mothers. We should admire those uh, who give of their lives to have a, have a child and to raise that child, we should definitely admire uh, them for that sacrifice and for their willingness to serve others. But I think universally, if you think about moms, the thing that we universally understand about moms is that probably maybe above all other things, mothers are comforters. <laughs> they are comforters, especially in times of crisis. They comfort us. I remember from the time I was very young, and when I was young, I found myself injured many times uh, throughout my life growing up, and, and my mom would always be the comforter. She would always come alongside of me. I remember one time I was in the alley, and I fell off a hot water heater in the alley. Now, that's a story for another day, uh, maybe, but I hurt myself, and I remember just running into the house and calling for my mom, and she comforted me and took care of me and bandaged my wounds and, and all of that. And, and uh, moms are, are definitely comforters. And, and even if you were to talk to Jeanette, and uh, you could, but you know what, right now you won't talk to her. But if you were to talk to Jeanette, she would say that maybe our boys are daddy's boys. She always says that, you know, our boys are daddy's boys. But the thing is, when our kids get hurt or they get injured, guess what? They're not a daddy's boy at that point. They want their mom. <laughs> they want uh, her comfort. When they're discouraged, they want to go to mom. They don't necessarily want to go uh, to dad. And I believe it's because there is a God-given nurturing uh, and calm presence that is given to moms, even so much that the most hardened criminal will call for his mom uh, before he goes to the electric chair. I mean, that's, maybe that's a little extreme, but you know, the hardened criminals, they call for their mom and, and they want their mommy, you know, in, in times of crisis. And of course, I mean, you understand things change. I mean, you guys get that as you get older in middle school, you know, desiring your mom to be there uh, becomes a little bit of an insult. You know, maybe somebody said this to you, like, hey, what are you going to do? Call your mom, you know, when you get hurt. And yes, I want to call my mom and I want her to come and I want her to to comfort me. But uh, even though those things change as we grow up and have our own families, things things adjust. The fact is, is that our moms are great comforters, especially in times of crisis. They come alongside of us. But the fact is, is that even though our moms comfort us and our moms come alongside us in those times of crisis and and our moms are super and they're they're great women, of course, uh, there will come a time in your life when your mom cannot come by your side. There'll come a, a time in your life uh, where maybe she won't be there for you. In fact, some of you, that's been the story of your life. Your mom was never involved in that way. Maybe you, some of you don't even know who your mom is. 
She birthed you and you're thankful for that, but you never really had that relationship, that comforting relationship. For some of you, sadly, your mom has passed away. Maybe even in the last few years, your mom has passed away and you're missing her at this point. And, and our hearts, we, my heart goes out to you and I'm, I'm praying for you. I prayed for those this morning, uh, mom, uh, people who are missing their moms today. And maybe that's your experience. Maybe uh, you don't have your, your mom around, but I wanna ask the question today, well, what does a mom do when she's in a crisis? You know, we're talking about how great they are uh, when we're in crisis, but what does a mom do when she's in a crisis? Where uh, do you go maybe if you don't have a mom who can comfort you and, and come alongside of you? Well, in our passage today in Acts chapter number 12, what we're going to do is we're going to answer that question today. And the question we're going to answer is how do you respond in a crisis or how can we respond when a time of crisis comes? Where do we turn when it seems like all of the odds uh, are stacked Against us now, where we last left off the book of Acts, we were uh, uh, we saw what we saw anyway last week when we were in the book of Acts is that we saw the gospel beginning to take root, and not only was the gospel beginning to take root, but the gospel was actually starting to take off, and it was all happening in the Gentile city called Antioch. And we looked at that last week, and I encourage you to go and maybe watch that message. But so far, what it seems like in the last few chapters is that it seems like the time of persecution is over. It seems like okay, you know, they kind of got through that initial persecution, but now the gospel's just going out. Out and things are starting to happen and great things are going to, you know, are ahead of the church. Maybe those difficult times are behind, but I think you understand and I understand that in a broken and a fallen world, that's not the case. Uh, in a difficult situation uh, or, or in, in the life that we live, there's always going to be heartache and there's always going to be difficulty, especially if you're a person who follows after Christ, because there will be somebody who will try to bring hardship uh, into your life. And that's what we see as we pick up the story in Acts chapter number 12. And so before Luke, who wrote the book, tells us about Paul's first missionary journey, what we notice here is that he relates to us another story of opposition now back in the Jerusalem church, which was that first church that started and exploded in such an incredible way. Well, in our story today, what we're going to see is a reminder, first of all, one big reminder we'll notice is that the advancement of the gospel is never without opposition and it's never without sacrifice. Jesus reflected that and showed that to us in his own life, that there's opposition and there's sacrifice in order for the truth to go out. And so that's what we notice first of all, but I want to begin the story in Acts chapter 12, and I begin reading in verse number one. For some of you, this might be a familiar story, uh, but I want to show us how we can respond in times of crisis through the story in Acts 12. So it says in verse one, now about that time, now I'll explain what that means when he says about that time. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hand, hands to vex certain of the church. That's a very strong word, vex. And notice in verse two, and he killed he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now, Luke doesn't waste any time in this chapter reminding us of the fact that in Jerusalem, the Christians there were still under some pressure. There was pressure for those that had been scattered because of persecution, but persecution really never left the church of Jerusalem. And so what we're seeing is the persecution continuing there as followers of Christ are under a lot of pressure. Now, there was two sources of pressure. There was, of course, the pressure that came from the Jewish religious leaders who wanted to stamp out anyone who claimed Jesus as the Messiah, but also there were the Roman rulers, those that were in charge of Judea. They were the occupying uh, nation, of course, at that time. And they also brought persecution as well. And in verse number one, notice how it says after that time. Now, this is a continuation of what we saw in chapter number 11, which told us about the fact that a famine was coming to the area of Jerusalem. And so you remember the church there took up an offering to send down to them. So it's really in a difficult time in Judea at this time. There's a famine. Uh, there's a shortage that's going on. And then we see King Herod, who is King Herod, a 
Agrippa I, we see him launch an attack on the church there in Jerusalem. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible at all in any way, you've heard the name Herod, definitely. And I got to tell you, there was a lot of different Herods. And so I want to explain a little bit about uh, who they were and what they were doing, because it's easy to get them confused. But the truth is this, they all came from the same family. They all came from the same uh, uh, lineage, and honestly, they were all jerks. I don't know how else to put it uh, in a nice way, but they were jerks. They were not great people, and they were notorious for attacking the people of God. They attacked the people of God is what they did. They ruled Israel, like I mentioned. They ruled this Roman province called Judea. And they were given that power through Rome directly, and it was delegated to them, and of course, it continued on down the line. So I'll explain a little bit here. So first of all, Herod Agrippa I, he's the one that we're talking about in Acts chapter 12, but I want to go all the way back to Herod the Great. So Herod the Great is one that you probably have heard about before, and Herod the Great, he is the one who was responsible for slaughtering the babies after the Magi's visit. You might remember that story back to when Jesus uh, was, was born about that time. Herod the Great was the one who was responsible for killing all the babies when the wise men came and said, uh, we've seen a star in the east and we've come to worship him. He was the one who was afraid of losing his power. And so he called for those babies to and under to be killed in order to maintain his power. And then later on, what we see is his youngest son, who was called Herod Antipas, and Herod Antipas, he was responsible for beheading John the Baptist. If you remember that story in Matthew chapter number uh, 14, he uh, beheaded John the Baptist in a moment of very strange arousal over his stepdaughter. And that's a crazy story there, but it shows you the kind of people uh, that they were. And so that was Herod Antipas. He was the one who beheaded John the Baptist. But now we see Herod Agrippa I, and we're introduced to him here in Acts chapter number 12. Later on, his son, Agrippa II, appears in Acts chapter 25 and verse number, or in chapters 25 and 26. But Herod Agrippa, so this is who we're talking about. Herod Agrippa here, he bears the evil characteristics of his forefathers, his father and his grandfather. As a child, he was sent to Rome and he was raised among Roman nobility. And there he developed some friendships that would eventually lead to him having this position of power uh, in Jerusalem and in that region that we're talking about today. It's really interesting. One of his classmates when he was growing up Future, uh, became the future uh, emperor Claudius. And of course, if you grow up with somebody, you know someone in power, especially in that Roman culture in that day, definitely that relationship led to him being in the position that he was in uh, uh, at his core, uh, or uh, the position that he was in. But at his core, that's what I wanted to say, at his core, Herod Agrippa I was not a great guy at his core. In fact, just even in this story, we will see that he was an insecure people, uh, political people pleaser. And the reason we know this is that because from history, when he was with the Romans, when he was in Rome and trying to uh, move forward his political career, he just did and, and fell in line with what everybody else said. And then when he got his position there and he's working with the Jews, guess what he did? He just wanted to please them. He wanted to make sure that those in power there were happy and he did everything he could just to be that sort of political guy. Uh, and he lived for the favor of other people. And we'll see that uh, later on in the story. But because of that, because his character was to please other people, and I'll just say this uh, as well, if that's your character, if your desire is to always please other people, you're always going to be doing things in order to gain their favor and their approval. And that's what we see him doing here. To gain the approval of the Jewish leaders, he goes ahead and begins to persecute those that called themselves Christ followers. 
The religious leaders of the day, of course, had been persecuting them. They had followed the approach of Saul of Tarsus, that they went house to house, finding anyone that could be accused of being a believer, taking them to prison, even killing them. But Herod Agrippa I took it a little bit further, where what he did is he decided that rather than trying to go around and and find out who is a follower of Christ and kill them, what he decided to do is I'm going to go right after the leaders and essentially try to cut off the head of the snake. And so that's what we see in these first two verses. And he goes and he gets James and he kills him, it says here, by the sword. James was an important leader. He was the first uh, apostle who was martyred. He was the one, of the one of the ones who was in the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. Uh, he was the brother of John. This is not James, the half-brother of Jesus, the one who became the leader of the church and not the one who wrote the book of James. This is the apostle James. And it says that he went and he killed him with the sword. By implication, we understand that he was more than likely beheaded for this. You say, well, why is that significant? Well, in the Jewish Talmud, a person killed by beheading meant that they were someone who was a complete Uh, They had completely left behind a belief in God. In fact, what it showed is that they were idolaters. And so all of the, even the way that he killed James was to please the Jewish leaders, to please those by saying, oh yeah, he was killed like an an idolater. He didn't even really believe God, even though the people there knew that he was a leader of the Jerusalem church. But not only did he kill James by the sword, but revealing a little bit more of his character Herod continues in verse number three. It says, and because he saw it pleased the Jews, there it is right there, he's a people pleaser. Because he ple- it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread, that's the Passover. And when he had apprehended him, that's Peter, he put him in prison and delivered him four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. So not only did Herod brutally kill James, but flush off of his success, he goes and he captures Peter and he puts him in prison. Of course, Peter was probably the most notable uh, believer, and he puts him under the care of 16 Roman soldiers and uh, that were charged with, with watching him. And he does it during the Passover. Now this, again, it's a little insight into who he was as a person. His timing was impeccable because the Passover is when the most people traveled. Pilgrims came from all over to Jerusalem. And so for him to appear as a, a leader of the people, to arrest him and to eventually desire to take his life, as we'll see here, it would have made him look good again. So it's all little uh, calculated decisions. Sometimes we wonder why governments make decisions on certain dates and around certain events that take place. It's because they're trying to uh, uh, firm up the base. And that's exactly what Herod is doing here. He does it around Passover. And so he, and so he arrests him and he puts him in prison, really guaranteeing the maximum impact, not only to the city, but to the church there in Jerusalem. I think it's needless for me to say this, but I think you understand the church in Jerusalem was in crisis. They were in crisis. James was dead. Peter was in prison. And that brings us to the question, what do you do when you are in a crisis? What do you do when you're in a situation like it seems like there's no way out or you don't see an end in sight? You know, if you're not in a crisis right now, you will be soon. Maybe Many of you have maybe coming out from a time of crisis, a time that it seemed like there was no way out. Today, I want to see in the passage three different aspects of how to approach a season of crisis from Acts chapter number 12. It may be a situation of fear. It may be a time that you just don't know what to do. I believe the passage here, though, gives us some really good points that will help us as we grow in our faith. Now, the first point of this, as we see, is in verse number six. 
So I want you to look with me at verse number six. And in verse number six is where we see Peter in prison, chained to some guards. Chapter 12 and verse six. It says, and when Herod would have brought him forth the same night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. Here's a great little story here. I don't want you to miss the details. He was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and the keepers before the door kept the prison. Point number one this morning in our passage, when we're faced with a time of crisis, I want you to assume God's presence. Point number one, I want you to assume God's presence. You say, well, where do you see in the passage that Peter is assuming God's presence? Well, I see it back in verse number six. Look at, look at the verse again. It says, the same night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. Think about this. He was sleeping. <laughs> he was sleeping. Think about it. He wasn't biting his nails. He wasn't pacing the floor. He wasn't writing letters of appeal or letters of his last word to his family. He was asleep right between the two guards that were chained to him, and he is sound asleep. How is this possible? How is it possible that Peter, knowing, it says here that Herod would have brought him forth, meaning it is time. He is hours away from his sure death. How is it possible that he is sleeping there in this situation. I mean, for us, if it's the slightest uh, financial uh, issue, the slightest family problem, man, it keeps us awake. But Peter is facing death and he is asleep on the ground there in prison right between these two guards. I think it's possible because Peter knew that God was in control. Peter knew that God was in control. He was assuming, if you want to use that term, he was assuming God's presence in that moment. Do you think he understood what was happening? No. Do you think that he was still grieving over the loss of James, his friend? I definitely think he was still grieving over that. But despite all of these challenges, despite the seemingly impossible situation, Peter was at peace, and I believe it was because he had seen the risen Lord himself. He had seen Jesus resurrected from the dead. He had seen others come back to life from the dead. And because he had seen the risen Savior, he was not fearing death himself. You know, the same is true for us of Christians today. When you have seen the risen Savior, there's no reason to fear any situation that you might find yourself in. You know that Jesus is alive. You know that he has power over death and he has power over your circumstances. And so because of that, what you need to do is simply assume that Jesus is in the room. Assume that he is present with you in that time. I think Peter would have remembered the power of Psalm 121 verse 4, where it says, behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. You know what? If God is the one who's in control, why should we lose sleep over it? We should just go back to sleep and rest in the fact that God is in control. As well, he would have known what the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 26 and verse 3 where he said, thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, meaning God will keep the person in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. You know, church, we need to be like Peter and simply assume the presence of God in our situations. We do not live as Christians today on explanations. We live on promises. And we don't see Peter here asking for an explanation. We don't see him crying out. We see him trusting in God's promises. And that peace that came through the promises that he was trusting in allowed him to be able to rest, to sleep just moments away from his death. I wonder if he remembered what Jesus had said to him earlier on in their ministry as well, where Jesus had promised him that he was going to live to an old life. I don't have the verse here, but that's in John chapter 21, verse 8. Jesus had said, you're going to live to be an old age. And I think he was resting in that promise that Jesus had given him as well. 
You know, church, we need to rest in the promises that God has given to us. I want you to do this right now. If you're watching and you're on the live chat, why don't you take a second? I'll let you go ahead and kind of lose focus for a moment. But why don't you, if you know it off the top of your head, why don't you put in the chat comments there one of the promises that you love from the word of God? Maybe something that God has encouraged you with, uh, a promise that, uh, a verse maybe that you hold on to in times of difficulty. And why don't you just put that in the live chat there, whether you're on Facebook or YouTube or the live.citybaptist, put that in there and encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ with God's word and how he has encouraged you. Guess what? I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna look at those comments because I wanna be encouraged with God's promises. We need to always assume and recognize that God's presence is with us, that he is with us in difficult situations. You know, scripture is full of a lot of promises. And I think hopefully you're chatting and putting those in and writing some of those down, but it's not just enough to know promises. We've got to live by those promises. Think about it. Peter later on wrote this in 1 Peter 5, 7. He said, casting all your care upon him for he careth for you. Maybe that's a promise that one of you is putting in the chat right now. You know, Peter said that later on. And, and the thing is, is that you cannot write about a God that you do not trust. You can't put those promises in if you do not trust him. And Peter trusted God explicitly, and he assumed that God's present, God was present in the situation. And it's hard for us to do. I get it. We want to know uh, why. We want to uh, know how we're going to get through it. But the fact is, God is working whether you see it or not. And sometimes the best thing you can do is just step back from a situation, recognize that he is in total control, that you really cannot affect or change the situation, and just say, God, I'm trusting in you, and allow that peace and that rest to come into your heart. I heard a story about a man who was running for an airplane, and we've all maybe experienced that. I remember one time I had to run uh, about a kilometer through an airport with my bags at full speed wearing flip-flops. It was not a good situation. And I remember running for that uh, plane, but the story's told about a man who's just running. I mean, he's steaming, he's got his bags on, he's sweating, he's trying to get to his flight. Uh, and while he's running to get to it, he passes a guy in a pilot's uniform. And the guy in the pilot's uniform calls out to him and he says, hey, where are you in a hurry to? What are you rushing off to? And he says, I'm trying to get uh, to this gate and I'm late for my plane and I don't want to miss my flight. I got to get home. And he told him the flight number and he said, this is where I'm hurrying to. Well, the man in the, in the pilot's uniform said to him, he said, hey, you don't need to be in a hurry. He said, I'm the one who's piloting that plane. <laughs> he said, I'm the pilot. So you don't need to rush. Here's the thing. If the pilot was chill, that guy could be chill as well. <laughs> and this is what I want you to understand. You, you cannot stress yourself about things unnecessarily. You need to wait on God and you need to trust that if God is taking his time, you can too. If God is taking his time, you can too. That man was rushing unnecessarily because the pilot was just leisurely taking his time. And we're like that man. We want to rush to that destination, don't we? We want to get to the gate. We want to take off. But God is saying, no, no, no. I'm not even in the pilot seat yet. Why would you want to work and get ahead of God? And I want to encourage you that today, church. Just rest in his promises. Rest that he's in control and trust God. Trust him. Trust him today and recognize his presence. Well, Peter was calm because he recognized and assumed the presence of God. But also we see Another reason for him to be calm in this crisis, and it was because he knew that other believers would be praying for him. That brings me to my second point this morning. We need to assume God's presence, but secondly, you need to ask God's people. Peter was calm because he knew that the church would be praying for him. Look at verse number five. It says, Peter therefore was kept in prison, but prayer was made, and here's the key, say it with me, without ceasing, 
without ceasing of the church unto God for him. You know, remember that church in, in Jerusalem, it would have seen hopeless. James was dead. Peter was right about to be killed. And uh, it seemed like there was no hope. It seemed like every door was closed. They would have felt weak. They would have felt hopeless. No protest was going to change Herod's mind. But yet we see the church doing what they could do and what you can do today, and that is go to the Lord in prayer. You know, to an unbeliever from the outside, or maybe today you're not a Christian and you're like, what are they doing just praying? He's in prison. They need to stage a jailbreak. Maybe you were hoping that's what's going to happen in the story, you know, hoping that the, the disciples are going to come in and there's going to be this great battle and they're going to rescue him out of there. Or they need to uh, plan some sort of kidnapping or, a, or some sort of political overthrow. Maybe you're thinking that and to an unbeliever, to someone who's not uh, close with, uh, in their relationship with God, that, that maybe seems logical. But to Christians who know God, the one thing that we do know is that we can always pray. We can always turn to him, and as believers have responded for years, these Christians turn to an almighty God in prayer, and it says that they went to him without ceasing. That means earnestly. It's the idea of a muscle being stretched to its, its furthest possible uh, 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 stretch amount. I don't know if that's the proper terms, but being stretched completely and being strengthened, and it says that they labored. They would have labored unceasingly, continually praying for God to work on the behalf of Peter. I wonder what they were praying that day. I'm sure there were some who were praying for his release. I also believe there's probably many who were praying that he would just have grace, that he would have grace in his last hours and his last day. But regardless of what they were praying for, I want you to notice that they went to God in prayer. I know you've heard it before, church, but I want you to get this again. Prayer must always be our first and our best response in times of crisis. Prayer must always be our first and our best response in times of crisis. Prayer is the Christian's weapon and we should not use it sparingly. And not only must we turn to pray though, we must pray like these early believers did, which was earnestly uh, with effort on the behalf of Peter. If you remember uh, Jesus going back to his Sermon on the Mount, uh, which was so powerful and taught us so many things, when he was teaching us to pray, he said this in Matthew chapter seven, verse seven. He said, ask and it shall be given you, seek and you shall find, knock and it shall be opened unto you. The idea of the passage here is simply that we should continue to seek. We should continue to knock. We should continue to ask that the door be open. It's a continual, persistent, continual, intense prayer specifically for a specific request. I heard somebody uh, commentate on this passage and they said this. They said, sometimes uh, we often pray so vaguely that we wouldn't even know if God answered our prayer if he did. You know, sometimes we say, well, God, uh, I pray that you will, you know, see someone saved. And then somebody's saved and you're like, oh yeah, that was my prayer. But hey, by the way, I was praying that prayer and somebody else was praying that prayer and people around the world are praying that prayer. And so I want to encourage you that with the church, they were praying specifically, I believe, for something to happen. They were asking God, they're saying, God, would you please do something in this, in this situation? And so in this crisis, they turned over to the one who controls the universe and they went to him on Peter's behalf. I wonder, when was the last time you earnestly went to the Lord in prayer? I mean, earnestly. When was the last time you fasted, did without so that you could go to the Lord and show to him the seriousness of your times of prayer? So often we only go when it's almost too late. And yet the fact is, is we as believers need to be continually returning to the Lord in prayer and it should be earnest. It should be frequent. It should be longer than just thanks for the meal. It should be an intense and focused time of prayer. And not only should we be doing that individually, but as a church, like we see here as the example, we should be praying collectively for one another. 
you know, I was thinking about it as far as the application for us today. And, and I think you understand we don't have any believers right now from our church or even really that I know of right now that uh, at least not in this country that are in prison right now for their faith. And, and I recognize that today. But what I do know is that there are many Christians that are in the prisons of their own minds. And right now they are locked up. <laughs> they are without escape. They're not able to escape their feelings of fear and of anxiety and of depression. There are those that are in bondage to the insecurity of their own hearts and uh, not recognizing their identity in Christ. And guess what? They need their church family praying for their freedom. They need their church uh, family praying for grace during that time. There are others that are in the bondage of sin. Scripture talks about how sin is something that holds us back. And there are those that are in the bondage of unforgiveness, those that are in the bondage of of, of sexual sin or of, uh, of something that's going on in their mind. They are... Uh, in bondage to uh, damaging thought patterns, addictions that they have in their life, unforgiveness, and they need you to pray for them. They need you to pray to, uh, that you would intercede on their behalf. And you've got to be willing to ask. You have to be willing to reach out and say, church, I need prayer. I need help. And you know what? When you know someone's praying for you, man, that gives you so much confidence. I was really saddened this week on Friday to hear about the passing of a pastor by the name of Darren Patrick. Now, I never met him personally. Um, but I have read his book. He wrote a book on church planning. It was part of a founding of a church planning network. I read his book when we just started out uh, just a few years ago. And I read his book and it was a tremendous help to me. Uh, but on Friday, I heard the news that this pastor and, and uh, had taken his own life. And it, I mean, a tragic, tragic story. In fact, the second uh, sort of well-known pastor to take their life in the last, uh, I don't know, six months or so. And uh, it, was, it was disturbing to hear about. It was hard to hear about his, his suicide and, and throughout the last few days, I've just seen so many people reaching out, and, and, and his wife has been uh, posting, of course, thanks for everyone who's been praying for him. But one of the overriding themes that has come out of this is that he reached a point where he just could not go on, on any longer, and no one knew about it. Nobody knew the despair that he was in. No one knew the struggle that he was walking through. And so as a as 49-year-old, not even 50 years old, he decided and made the wrong decision to take his own life. And the effects are, I mean, widespread, widespread at this point. Here, here's, my, here's my thought. Listen, if you need prayer, you need to ask for prayer. If you need help today, you need to ask for help. And your church family is the one that you can reach out to. There's no reason to go along uh, out of your own pride and not willing to reach, uh, reach out to somebody else. Listen, the God who's about to do something great in Peter's life is the same God who can do something great in your life if you would just reach out to him. And reach out to your church family. We're here to come alongside of you and to help you in times of crisis. And Peter was in a great crisis, but he knew, he knew that God was with him. And he knew that his believers were praying for him. And they were in, uh, going to the Lord on his behalf. But I don't want you to miss the last part of this message. So if you're with me today, I want you to put it in the chat. I'm with you, pastor. All right, just type it in there right now. Type it in there and say, I'm with you. I'm with you right now. I'm ready to go. I'm, I'm listening. I'm paying attention. I want to make sure you're with me as we finish up the message today uh, on how to handle uh, times of crisis. Look at verse, uh, well, thirdly, I'll just give you the third point right away. The third thing we need to do is appreciate God's power. Appreciate God's power. You need to assume his presence. You need to ask God's people, but then appreciate God's power. And that's what we're going to do. I want to read the next few verses here and appreciate what God is about to do, just as we should do when God works in our lives. Look at verse six. It says, and when Herod would have brought him forth the same night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and the keepers before the door 
kept the prison. Verse seven, and behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him and a light shined in the prison and he smote Peter on the side and raised him up saying, arise up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Verse number eight. And the angel said unto him, gird thyself and bind on thy sandal. That means put your clothes on. And so he did. And he saith unto him, cast thy garment about thee and follow me. And he went out and followed him. And wist not, he did not know that it was true, which was done by the angel. But he thought he saw a vision. Verse 10, and when they were past the first and the second ward, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, which opened to hit them of his own accord. And they went out and passed on through one street and forthwith right away, the angel then departed from him. I'm sure Luke loved writing this passage. I'm sure that as Peter uh, told him the story and told him what took place, I'm sure he had to be laughing a little bit to himself. He's saying, wait a second, Peter, wait a minute. You were so asleep that the angel had to punch you in the ribs <laughs> to kick you in the ribs to wake you up. Yeah. Yeah. man, I was out. <laughs> I was out like a light. And then wait a minute, you, he, he woke you up and he told you you had to get your clothes on. You were so, he's like, man, I was so groggy. I didn't know what was going on. I was trying to tie my sandals. I couldn't get it going. And the angel's like, dude, let's make it happen. We got to get moving here. And, uh, and so Luke, you know, I'm sure they were laughing about it. I'm, I'm sure that as Peter said, yeah, I walked up to the gate and I was leaving and no one saw me and the gate just opened up. I mean, like the, like the force, like woo, the gate, well, he didn't know what the force was, but you know, the gate just opened right before him and God opened it and they walked out into the street and then Luke saying to Peter, and so you're telling me that you got into the street and the angel was just gone. And Peter's like, yeah, he was gone. And guess what? I got out of there, man. I took off. And that's when I realized it wasn't just a dream. I'm sure maybe Peter was even saying when he was telling him about it, he thought it was a dream. He's like, man, I was just waiting for that sheet to come down with all those animals in it again. You know, I was waiting for that to happen. Uh, but uh, it, it, he said, I thought it was a dream. And then finally I realized, okay, this was real. An angel had come. God had rescued him. God had broken him out of prison. And I love reading into the humor, of course, of the story. And, and you can't miss out on the humor in the word of God, of course. But the thing I don't want you to miss out on is that this story isn't just about Peter's miraculous escape. What it's about is about God's deliverance is what it is. It's about God's deliverance. It's about the Lord delivering him by his loving grace for grace's undeserved favor. And we see God delivering Peter in an amazing way. And honestly, none of us really know as to why that was. Remember, James had just given his life for the cause, but yet God chose to rescue Peter and allow him to continue to minister for some years to come. And so we see God's deliverance to him, and it's amazing, but it's a reminder to me of how Jesus is also our great rescuer. Just as God rescued Peter, God rescues us. And in the same way, we can be saved today by simply trusting in him through faith because of the grace that he has extended to us. And it's not because of anything that we have done. Listen, I think part of the reason some of these details are in here is because there's no way Peter could be like, oh yeah, man, I totally snuck out of there. No way. It was completely and totally of God. Just like salvation that we can receive through Christ is completely of him. It is nothing at all with what we can do. But God's grace here was so amazing to Peter. But yet the grace was so astonishing in a way that the believers who were praying for this to happen didn't even recognize that God had done something incredible. But before we get to that, look at verse 11, where Peter has his moment of realization. It says, when Peter was come to himself, he said, now I know of a surety that the Lord has sent his angel and hath delivered me out of the hand of Herod and from all the expectation 
of the people of the Jews. Peter says this powerful statement to himself. By the way, it's not a bad thing to make statements to yourself to remind you of the power and the grace of God. He says, surely I know that God has done something great in my life. Now let's look down at verse number 12. It says, and when he had considered the thing, so he thought about it, says that he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, John Mark's mother. It's a place that we believe uh, Christ gathered with his disciples, the 120 that he gathered with, even after his resurrection. Uh, th- this lady Mary was very generous with her home and many people met. And so Peter thought, if I'm out, I bet you there's people over there at Mary's house. And so he heads over there. And then in verse number 13, it says, and as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, so he would have been a gate at the street, street level, he knocks at the gate and it says that a damsel came to hearken named Rhoda. So they had somebody who was in charge, more than likely just a, a, young, a young girl would have been there. And her job was to watch the door as the disciples and, and the, people follow, the followers prayed inside. And so she came. And then in verse 14, and when she knew Peter's voice, she opened not the gate for gladness. Notice that. She heard his voice, but she didn't open the gate, but ran in and told how Peter stood before the gate. So she came running in and says, Peter, it's Peter, he's at the gate. And then they said in verse 15, thou art mad. (laughs) You are crazy, Rhoda. What are you talking about? You are completely crazy. They said, you don't know what you're talking about. But it says here that she constantly affirmed that it was even so. Meaning she said, no, 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 no. It is Peter. I tell you, it is Peter. I heard his voice. I know his voice. I've heard him preach. It is Peter. It is him. Then said they, it is his angel. (laughs) It is his angel. Now, this is kind of a funny little uh, part of the passage here. She's insistent that it's Peter. She heard his voice. By the way, don't miss out on the fact that she took off without even letting him in. She just ran off. She was so excited about it. And then they say that perhaps it's his angel. In other words, they created a theology for the moment. <laughs> they, they said, oh, it's, it's an old theology from, uh, from the Jewish days that was never affirmed or, confer- or neither confirmed, but they used to believe there was an angel for every person, you know, but it's never confirmed in the New Testament. Jesus never talked about it. And so we see these believers like almost essentially making up a theology like, oh, it must have been his angel. Just please be quiet. We're praying here for Peter. But then verse 16, but Peter continued knocking. <laughs> He's like, I got to get out of the street. He continued knocking. And when they had opened the door, they saw him. And when they saw him, they were uh, astonished, it says. That's the idea of being knocked back again. But he, beckoning unto them with a hand to hold their peace, (laughs) declared unto them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go show these things unto James and to the brethren. And he departed and went into another place. Peter, the escaped prisoner, did not want to spend a lot of time in the street. And so what he did was he, uh, when he, when he got there and they finally let him in and when they recognized him for who he was, I was thinking about it, it's kind of like when I see somebody from church, it's like, woo, you know, we get excited and we get loud. Uh, when they saw him and they got loud and Peter's like, hey, hey, keep it down, keep it down. Let me in, let me in. I want to get in. I want to get off the street. I don't want anybody to notice. Peter recognized that because God had rescued him did not mean that everything from his life was going to be a miracle from that point on. He needed to have some common sense. And so he got off of the street. And uh, he got there into the house and he quickly relates to them what, what God had done. And then he instructs them to tell James. Now, this is James, the half-brother of Jesus, the one who would be the leader of the church of Jerusalem. He would also be the one who wrote the book of James. So the other James, he, he said, I want you to go and tell him. Now, this is a small detail here, but it's important because it's, a, it's again, another transitional point in the book of Acts where Peter sort of steps out of focus and James then comes into focus as the leader in the church of Jerusalem. So he says, I want you to go and tell James what happened to me 
And then it says that Peter departed into another place, an unnamed place, a safe house, if you want to call it that. He disappears from off the scene and in fact is only mentioned one more time in the book of Acts from this point forward. He disappears for the next 20 years or so. And he just goes off the scene. It's an incredible story of God's work and God's salvation of somebody who's following him. And I don't want us to miss out on the focus of the passage, church, which is the almighty power of God. I don't want you to miss that. And that's why I titled this uh, last thought here to just stand back and watch and see what God is doing. And that's what we see here is God stepping in in an almighty way and interceding on the behalf of the church there in Jerusalem. The other lesson that we need to learn from this is that we often respond like the Jerusalem church where we don't even recognize what God is doing. And we sometimes miss out on the fact that God is doing something right in front of us. You know, I'm sure that this story of Peter's deliverance became one of the favorite stories of the church going forward. I'm sure they love to tell this story. I'm sure they love to give those details. And I'm sure they talked about that prayer meeting. And I'm sure it brought about a lot of laughs and probably some tears as they thought back and remembered this story. But I definitely do believe that that night some lives were changed for the better as the church there in Jerusalem became reacquainted with God's power and God's provision. It's truly amazing to think that regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in, God's will will always be done. He can deliver us whenever it is that he chooses. And for us today with our idea or our subject around the idea of crisis, God can work in any crisis or circumstance that we find ourselves in. By the way, it doesn't mean that he always will. It doesn't always mean that he's going to do what we say he should do. But because he doesn't act how we think he should act, it doesn't mean that he can't act on our behalf. God wants us to rest in the assurance of his unchanging, constant power. And what happens in the rest of the book of Acts, or the rest of the chapter, sorry, is that we see God continuing to reveal his power by delivering the church there in Jerusalem from Herod. It's a crazy story. I would encourage you to go and read it yourself. When he finds out that Peter is gone, he hits the roof. But then there's a, a bunch of, a, a few steps, sorry, a few circumstances that come up after this that again reveals God's power and the fact that God is in control. But I want to look down at verse 24 as we close this morning. It says that the word of God grew and multiplied. The word of God grew and multiplied. The result of the church's prayer, the result of the church resting in God's presence is that the gospel continued to go out. The word continued to grow. People continued to turn to Jesus Christ. And it's such a powerful thought this morning that no matter what it is that we are going through, no matter the crisis, God always has a plan for his people. And this morning, if you don't get anything else today, I want you to get this. I want you to be reacquainted and reminded of the fact that you have a place with God. If you're, if you're saved today, you, are, you have a position in his family. And I want to remind you as well about the power of God that he can work in whatever circumstance and whatever situation in crisis that you find yourself in. We are God's children and we will never be orphans to his love and never orphans to his power. We have the promises of his word and we have the power of prayer at our disposal. So the question is, do you really believe that God is in control? Can you look at your circumstances and the situation, maybe the crisis that you are in right now, can you look at that crisis like Peter did and just rest and assume, you know what, God is in this in some way. Instead of rushing on ahead like that man trying to get to his, his flight, <laughs> recognizing that, hey, I need the pilot in the seat before I try to take off. I need to just sit back and I need to rest. And if God is waiting, then I need to be okay with it 
as well. The church was in a crisis and God stepped in and did something incredible as they assumed his presence, as they asked and prayed for one another, and then as they appreciated then God's power through his situation. God may not always work how we think he should, but it doesn't mean that he can't work. And we need to learn from this incredible story today. So I ask you, are you in a crisis today? Are you resting in the power of God? Are you claiming his promises as your own? Maybe you're in a season right now where you've been neglecting the power of prayer. You've been neglecting or you've been afraid to even ask someone for prayer or to reach out. There is no harm in going to a brother or sister in Christ and saying, would you pray for me? I'm going through something right now. Or even say, hey, specifically, this is something I'm, I'm struggling with. This is something that I could really use some help. And church family, I know and I hope that you'll come together in prayer for that person. And then we can step back and just watch God do something incredible. See, when we walk with the Lord with confidence, you're able to appreciate a little bit better the work that he's doing in your life. I have to ask as well, if you're watching today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal savior, would you accept him today? Would you go to our website, citybaptist.ca? And if you would go there at the top, it says good news. And you can watch a video and read about God's love for you and how you can be saved today and walk in that confidence. I hope that you'll make that decision. I hope that you'll let us know about that decision and reach out to us. We would love to help you step into that walk into your walk and relationship with Jesus Christ. But church family today, we're gonna to take just a moment now and have a time of reflection. I wanna encourage you to sit in the quiet and to listen to the song and to reflect on God's work in your life. Reflect on how he's there for you in times of crisis. You might be going through it right now, but can I encourage you to assume God's presence, assume God's presence, ask God's people to work for you and then appreciate his power and appreciate what God is gonna do for you. We hope that today's message was a help and encouragement to you in your walk with God. To stay connected with us, give us a like on Facebook or follow us on Instagram at Van City Baptist. Our prayer is that God will grow and bless you as you pursue His will for your life.